Hey, everybody. Good morning. Welcome. Welcome to Coastal Community Church. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, hey, thank you for uh, scooch, scooching in uh, during the service. Uh, we, uh, this service tends to be uh, standing room only, and we're working on that. But um, uh, right now, I appreciate your, uh, uh, your kindness towards your neighbor and uh, your willingness to uh, make room for others. Uh, man, we've had a great week here at Coastal. We kicked off Job, the series on Job, last Sunday. Had a great um, membership class uh, Monday night, this past Monday night, and then yesterday. Uh, if you made your way into the Welcome Center already, you probably saw the uh, shoe boxes wrapped and packed. And I think we, uh, we packed and wrapped uh, 142 uh, shoe boxes yesterday, yesterday morning. And uh, so that's awesome. We can't wait to see those uh, go out and bless children uh, all over the world. Um, uh, that song we just sang, wow, what a powerful song. It feels like it was just written uh, perfectly uh, for this series on Job. A great song. I'm sure uh, you'll get a lot out of that. Um, I want to kind of recap uh, last Sunday, if you weren't here, uh, as we kicked off this series. Uh, remember that uh, God basically allowed Satan to have his way with Job. Remember Job, he's, God basically was bragging about Job. And uh, he was faithful and upright and a man of integrity. And uh, so God allows Satan to have his way with him. And as a result, uh, Job has the day from hell. Okay? It's bad. In fact, uh, everything fell apart. And just when he didn't think it could get any worse, what happened? It did, right? It got worse. I mean, it just got worse and worse and worse. He begins the day as like a bazillionaire, and uh, by the end of the day, he is destitute and has lost everything he has, and then it gets even worse. A natural disaster strikes uh, where uh, his children are basically partying in a home, and uh, all 10 kids of, uh, of Job were killed instantly, and then it, and then it, gets, it keeps getting worse. Uh, his health breaks, and uh, he's afflicted with some kind of boil from head to toe, and he just starts scraping himself with, with broken pottery to get some sort of uh, relief. And then even his wife, remember, the one close relative that he has left is basically a nag. And just nags him like, hey, why don't you just curse God, give it up and die? And, uh, but Job never did. He was a man of great integrity. He holds on to his faith. And again, at this point, um, Job probably is thinking, wow, it can only go up from here. Ever been at that point, you know? I mean, it's bad when you, you basically, the only thing you got left to say is, well, it can't get any worse, right? It can only go up. That's really where he's at. But the problem becomes is that Job is in for an experience that very few people understand unless you've been through it. And it is, it's this principle, and I want you to hear this loud and clear today. Deep wounds take a long time to heal. You know, when, when you're struck with tragedy or, or suffering or pain or deep hurt, you don't get over it overnight. And, and all of a sudden, what happens is that Job begins to discover this, and he begins to figure out that, you know, it doesn't get easier. The grief that he's experiencing, the pain that he feels, it doesn't get easier in a week or in a month. You know, sometimes it actually gets worse. For example, I, I, I am sure, I mean, I know that I know that, you know, a month later, six months later, it was probably even more painful, the loss of all 10 of his kids. You know, six months after they were gone. And I know that many of you who have lost a loved one this past year, you know, you would never, you know, it, it's hard to 
understand the pain of, of that moment and that day. But the truth is, you know exactly what Job must have felt later, especially now, right? That the holidays are approaching. And you start thinking about Thanksgiving and Christmas without that loved one. In fact, the Bible records Job and some of his thoughts during this time. In fact, by the way, basically I'm going to try to uh, overview 35 chapters this morning in this message, okay? Um, so, uh, but listen to some of his thoughts. Uh, chapter 19, he says, I'm nothing but skin and bones. Chapter 21, my body trembles. Chapter 30, my, my skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. The churning inside of me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. Again, this is on ongoing, ongoing pain, ongoing suffering. He says again in chapter 30, verse 17, my gnawing pain never rests. And then I love this one, last but not least, my breath is offensive to my wife. I mean, wow. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I'm trying to think, why in the world does that one, you know, rank up there with all the rest of his troubles? I mean, you know, she calling him like stinky breath or something and just, I bet she's just nagging about him every day. Hey, not only do you got those nasty boils, you stink, you know? I mean, she's probably just nagging him constantly. Well, one of the greatest tests of life that you and I are ever going to encounter oftentimes is not, listen to this, it's not the immediate crisis. It's the prolonged pain that follows. It's the prolonged pain that follows. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, think about it. Some of you might be familiar with some of these Bible characters. You know, like Sarah, for example. She was barren for 25 years after God promised that she'd have a child. Joseph was a slave in Egypt for 13 years before he ever got you know, pr promoted to prominence. Moses wandered around in the wilderness with the complaining, griping people of Israel for how long? How long was he wandering in the wilderness? you remember? 40 years, a generation. Elijah experienced the pain of a famine for three and a half years. Paul in the New Testament is in prison for four years. Now, the reason all of these Bible characters, though, were commended and were used as examples was because they simply persevered. I mean, that's it. They persevered because of their faith. Their faith, you know, their faith sustained them throughout the struggle. And, and honestly, our goal many times is quite simply the same. It is to be faithful through the struggle. Not just in the immediate, you know, the immediate pain, the immediate hurt, but then later. Now today, again, we're going to take a look at this big kind of middle section book of Job. And it's kind of more of an overview today. But this is the section that one commentary refers to as God's waiting room. Anybody here love a waiting room? I mean, nobody does, right? We all hate the waiting room. You know, especially like when you go to a doctor's waiting room and it's obvious they've like way overbooked. Everybody, you're like, how in the world are you going to see these 50 people, you know? I mean, like we're, we're all here. The magazines are like four years old, right? It's just terrible. Nobody likes it. Nobody loves a waiting room. How many of you, though, feel like you're in a waiting room in some area of your life? You know, you feel like you're, you're kind of like in God's limbo or something. Well, today, I want us to examine that. And we're going to do that by looking at the waiting room of Job's life and how he remained faithful 
And then at the end, like we did last week, I want to give you some lessons, all of us some lessons that we can apply to our life today and this week. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, remember, with Job's three friends. Uh, this is still in chapter 2, but I want to get, get an idea of what's happening here and give you their names, and we're going to talk about these three friends. Well, it says, Job 2.11, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Now, it sounds great, right? I mean, it really does. Job's had a bad time, a bad way. His friends hear about it. They get the news. They actually all get together. They meet together and they decide they're going to go and, uh, and be with Job. Now, before we get to chapter 3 and 4, let's just start out right here and say this. The most important thing that you and I can do when we have a friend who is in pain, who is hurting, it's just to be there. Now, so often, listen to this, so often, especially as Christians, we are tempted when a friend is hurting, when a friend is in pain, to not to do that, not to go there, not to be there, because we don't know what? What to say. Exactly. We think, well, I don't have the answers. I don't know the, all the scripture verses. I don't know all the cute little Christian bumper sticker cliches. I don't know what to do. In fact, you find yourself thinking like, okay, so what do I tell somebody who has lost a child? I mean, what do I say at that funeral home or at that, you know, that service when someone has lost a spouse? Or, or what about when you know, a good friend of mine's uh, teenage son or daughter has been arrested? Or a great friend of mine just found out they lost their job. What do I do? What do I say? And so you're, t you're tempted to pretend like nothing's happened and just ignore it. But listen, that doesn't help. That doesn't help. In fact, listen to this. It is not nearly as important that you say the right thing as it is that you're just there. That you're just there. Listen, I have been there because of my position as a pastor countless times, more times than I could probably count. You know, funeral homes, bedside, hospitals, you know, the, the time of, of great tragedy and hurt. And, and you know what I've discovered? Most people do not remember what you say. And they won't. They're, they're not going to remember what you said. But they will never forget, you ready for this? That you showed up. That's it. Now, here at the beginning at least, Job's friends show up. Now, I know, I know I made a joke about this last Sunday because of their initial reaction, right? Remember how when they first saw him, Job looked so terrible that they don't know what to say. In fact, it was so bad, they actually sat in silence for seven days. That's how terrible Job looked. Now, at least in the beginning, at least in the beginning, they didn't make small talk and say something stupid, Okay? Um, a great little book, some of you might want to pick this up, it's entitled uh, The Last Thing We Talk About, written by a guy by the name of Joe Bailey. He basically has lost three of his children in a series of tragedies. And uh, in this book, he tells the story about how this one friend uh, visited him in the funeral home, Christian friend. And this friend talked and talked and talked. And he talked about God's grace 
God's provision and God's love, quoted scripture, talked and talked and talked. Joe said, you know what? I knew all those things were true. But I couldn't wait for him to leave. And then another friend showed up. And you know what that friend did? He just sat with him quietly. And he didn't say a lot. He was just there if somebody needed him, something needed to be done. And Joe Bailey said this, I hated to see him go. Listen, Job's friends, initially they came and they stayed for a week. And they were just there, just there. Now, that part was good, and I think it's a good reminder for us. But what comes in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is not good. Because then finally, Job kind of comes out of his, his time of silence. And after the, it says this in chapter 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night that it was said, a baby is born, a boy is born, right? That's a day of great joy, right? He says, that day, may it turn to darkness. May God not care at all about it. May no light shine upon it. Wow. I mean, wow. Now, what, what happened to the guy, you know, Two chapters earlier who said, remember, you know, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, I mean, what happened to that guy? Well, Job is now discovering the reality, the reality of pain, the reality of suffering, and the reality of pain and suffering when it lasts for a long time. You know, it, it's, it's so bad that he even wishes he was never born. Chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Why did I not perish at birth? Which, by the way, was very common then. He said, Why? You know, and die as I came from the womb. You know, he goes on to say, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. He is hurting. He is in deep pain. Now, all of a sudden, Job's friends, and remember, you know, what we're going to discover is with, with friends like these who what? Who needs enemies, right? Well, all of a sudden, they decide that it's time to, for them to come out of their silence, and they're going to straighten Job out. And so chapter 4 records that Eliphaz is the first one to speak, and he kind of starts by saying some very nice things about Job, but then beginning of verse 5, he says some things that do not help at all. And yet, we're going to hear some of this, and you know what? I bet you've heard some of these things, and maybe some of you have even said some of this stuff. Listen to this, Job 4, verses uh, 5 and 6. But now trouble comes to you, and you're discouraged. It strikes you, and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence, and your blameless ways be your hope? In other words, he's saying, Job, shouldn't your faith keep you from depression? You're acting like you don't believe in God now. Hey, straighten up. You know, get your act together. You've been depressed now for about a week. Okay, get over it. Stop moping around. It's time to get on with life. Verses 8 and 9. As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And the breath of God, they are at the breath of God, they are destroyed. At the blast of his anger, they perish. In other words, Job, man, you better confess because there's got to be some evil in your life that, that caused this to happen. Because what you, you know, what you reap, what you reap, you sow. What you get, what you earn. That's basically what he's saying. You know, Eliphaz says, cheer up. Things will get better. In fact, listen to this, verse 19, he says, God will rescue you. Or how about this? One day you're going to laugh at this. Verse, I mean, I mean you, you've heard that before, right? 
I mean, some of you have been there, your, your darkest time, and somebody goes, hey, one day this is going to be a joke. You know, we're going to laugh at all this, okay? And then he says, hey, don't worry, you'll bounce back, you'll get property again. And then in verse 25, of all the terrible things to say, he says this, you'll have more children one day. Oh, my goodness. I mean, now you think about it. Even if any of those things may or may not be true, Years down the road, who in the world in the time of pain and suffering wants to hear that? I mean, if a child dies, listen to me, if a mom has a miscarriage, in what world does it help to say to the grieving mom or dad, hey, you're young, you'll still have more kids? And yet some of you probably heard that. And Job hears that as well. Chapter 6, Job speaks up a little bit, and he says, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on a scale, it would outweigh the sands of the sea. No wonder my words have been impetuous. What's he saying there? You know what he's saying? I wish somebody could understand my pain. You know, if it could be put on a scale, I wish somehow, you know, I could find the people who are hurting like I'm hurting and, and they, they could understand it. He, he's frustrated that nobody seems to understand his pain. Now, moms, let me, let me ask you, we're talking about parents. Let's be honest. How many of you have ever wished, moms, that your husbands could understand the pain of childbirth? I mean, how many of you have pulled that card? You know you have. You always do. I've heard this. In fact, how many of you serious, seriously believe that kidney stones for a guy are nothing more than God's way of zapping them and getting, getting even for you, right? I mean, that's, that's what you think. There is, and, and yet, there is, I mean, because guys pull that card too, right? Well, I didn't have a baby, but I had a kidney stone, right? You know, like, how big was that kidney stone? That big, right? The baby was that. Anyway, okay. So, but, there, but there's no way, is there? This is what we need to hear. There's no way to measure somebody's pain. You know, you can't, you can't say that, well, their pain is not that bad. I've been through You can't do that. And so Job is miserable. He wishes he were dead. He can't believe his friends are talking like this. So now Bildad speaks up, chapter 8. He says, how long are you going to say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Wow. What's he saying? He's saying, Job, you know your kids weren't perfect. They did a lot of partying, and now they've just reaped what they've sowed. So in chapter 9, Job responds again. He says, listen to this, because some of you have been there. I know God is in charge, but I just wish he'd give me an explanation. And he complains in, in chapter 9, verse 11, when he passes me, I can't see him. When he goes by, I don't perceive him. Verse 16, even if I summoned him and he responded, I don't believe he would even give me a hearing. Now in chapter 3, the friend Zophar decides to gang up on Job as well. And it says this, then Zophar the Namathite replied, are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce men to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I'm pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish God would speak. That he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, 
God has even forgotten some of your sin. In other words, Job, let's be honest. These are terrible things that don't just happen to people. You, you say you're pure, but it's obvious God must be punishing you. I mean, this is terrible. This is awful. And then in chapter 12 and 13, Job is completely exasperated, and he says this. Then Job replied, doubtless you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. In other words, okay, you guys are know-it-alls. You know everything. He says, when, when you die, it's going to be disastrous because all wisdom will be gone. But I have a mind as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things? And then uh, chapter 13, he says, you, however, you smear me with lies. Ever had anybody lie about you when you're suffering? He says, listen to this, you are worthless physicians, all of you. You know what he's saying? Hey, get off of WebMD. You don't know what I'm going through. That's what he's saying here. You know, if only, it would be, if only you would be silent, if only all of you would shut up, that would be wisdom. Let's learn some lessons from all this today. Because I think there's some important lessons, not just, by the way, for the people who are suffering and in pain in that waiting room, but for those of us who are there as friends. Here's the first lesson. When you go through prolonged pain, understand that most of your friends are not going to continue to sympathize with you. But be tolerant of them anyway. That's, that's a hard truth. But, but I want you to hear this. It's not meant to sound as hard as it, as it really does sound, but you know, even the Apostle Paul, when he was in prison, after a while he said, everyone has deserted me. I mean, think about it. it. It is amazing, and I've seen this, and it really is a beautiful, amazing thing how sympathetic people really can be with one another. And we've witnessed that in the church. I know you've experienced that. But sometimes I think we need to be reminded that people can be very sympathetic for like a day, a week, or a month. And then many times for a lot of people, well-meaning people, they forget and life goes on. Now, it is not intentional most of the time. It really isn't. And, and it's not mean-spirited. It's not meant to be that way. But I think we just need to be reminded that even in the, of, of the suffering in a waiting room, that most of our friends at some point and some time, they go back to work. Their kids continue to play ball. Vacations come and go. Holidays come and go. And very simply, life goes on. And it's not mean-spirited. And it's not intentional. They just, listen, quite honestly, you know what? Some of your friends, many of your friends are just not it's just not in their DNA. They're not gifted as counselors. They're not gifted to, to minister to you in your deepest time of hurt. That's just true. I mean, I know they, and again, they'll be there to help. They'll do their very best. But you've got to recognize that they really aren't capable of truly, completely understanding. Now, hold on to them. Don't lose them. Don't expect more of them than what they can give. But, so hold on to those friends. They're still your friends. But maybe what you need to be encouraged to do is to find a support group. You know, find that other person who has gone through a similar experience. You might develop some new lifelong friends. But don't expect more out of your current friends than they're able to give you. That's unfair to them and unfair to you. 
You know, there's this beautiful verse in Galatians 6.2 that says that we as believers are to carry one another's burdens. And I've seen that, and I've witnessed that, I've experienced it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing when the church comes together and loves one another and then does that. However, a few verses later, the Apostle Paul says we're also to carry our own load. I mean, think about it. On one hand, you know, carry one another's burdens. On the other hand, carry your own load. What's he saying? He's saying both are important. There is a sense in which other people can, can love you and serve you and they can help, but there's another sense that ultimately only you can bear it with the Lord. And so don't expect more of other people than what they can, what they can deliver. Here's a second lesson. God will often be silent and will seem very distant. Trust him anyway. Trust him anyway. You know, that's the amazing story about Job, is that he remained faithful while he was hurting, even though he was hurting. Chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I mean, Job didn't understand why did God seem so far away. Verse 24, why do you hide your face and, and you consider me your enemy? You know, then he says, though I have cried, I've been wrong. I get no response, though I call for your help. There is no justice. He's hurting. You know, one of the most difficult tests of your faith is just going to be to wait for God when there don't seem to be any answers. How do you react to God when he doesn't seem to answer and life seems to be falling apart? That's when you've got to rely on the facts of God's word, on his promises, and not your feelings. Because feelings come and go. They're going to be changing moment by moment many times. And there's a huge difference between God, the silence of God and the absence of God. And the Bible assures us, listen to this, that believe it or not, even if it might not feel this way, he is actually closer to you in trouble than any other time. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you, nor, nor what? Nor forsake you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. There's another lesson I want you to see. When pain is prolonged, you are going to struggle with bitterness. You are going to struggle with bitterness. Be faithful anyway. You know, we, we praise Job for his faith. But you know what? Man, he, you read this middle section, oh my goodness, he struggled. He struggled with, with doubt, with bitterness, with depression. Chapter 7, my eyes will never see happiness again. That's how he literally felt. Chapter 17, my spirit is broken, my days are cut short, nothing awaits me but death, the grave. He battled, he battled bitterness toward God, resentment toward his friends, despair toward life. He even thought about suicide. Listen, and when you're down, when you're really down, Satan is going to come and he's going to plant those thoughts of self-destruction in your mind. And you've just got to be aware of it. You've got to be prepared for it. That he's going to try to convince you that everybody else would be better off without you. That's not the right solution. That's, that's not a shortcut to peace. That's not God's will. It, 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 ultimately, it becomes a very selfish act and is going to leave your family in, in deep grief and wounded. You know, when you despair, even of life, 
That's where that promise of God, sometimes it might be the only thing you have to hang on to. And we just sang it a second ago in that song, and that is you've got to be reminded that somehow, some way, God has this miraculous ability, if I'll wait, if I'll hang on, to even work together all things for my good to those who love him. You know, I love it that in the New Testament, Job is, is commended as an example of faith and suffering. James 5.11, it says, you have heard of Job's perseverance. And you've seen what, Job, what, what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. How can he say that? Well, because like us, we can look back on the story. And right now, for some of you, you can't see that yet because you're in the middle of it. You're in that waiting room. And yet, there is an end to the story. You know, just this past week, um, I got a phone call from a woman here from our church, Connie McElhaney. Some of you remember her and know her. Uh, this past week, she gave me a call, and about a year ago, her husband was murdered uh, by a family member, and they're embroiled in a whole legal thing in, up in Illinois, and it's a mess, and she's a mess. And she's struggling. She's struggling with bitterness. And you know what? She called me up this week, and this is what she said. She said, Pastor Chris, I'm struggling with forgiveness. I know those Bible verses. I know what Jesus says about forgiveness. And I don't think I can. Now, what do you think I told her? What, what did she need to hear? Cute little cliches, a rebuke, quoting scripture about God's forgiveness. You know what I told her? You ready for this? Connie, that's okay. You don't have to right now. Don't even think about it. But I share with her what, what we talked about last week. You know what I told her? I said, Connie, God's love for you is big enough to handle your anger toward him and your anger toward those people. Just don't, don't worry about that right now. I want to I share in closing four quick uh, things that you and I can do to avoid bitterness when we are in the waiting room. Number one, write this down. Accept your experience as a test from God. You know, instead of always wanting answers, sometimes like Job, we just got to dig in and say, even though he slay me, I'm going to trust him. And, and maybe, just maybe, you, you can only hold on to the idea that maybe God one day, one day, down the road is going to do something beautiful through all this. And maybe, just maybe, I'll be a little bit more like Jesus at the end. Here's the second thing to remember. Repeat the spiritual disciplines even though they seem very empty at times. When you're hurting, when you're confused, when you are in deep pain, you ready for this? Here it is. Keep going to church. Even if you can't, you can't bring your mouth to make the words of the songs that we are singing, keep coming. Just listen. You know, 
even though it seems like you don't want to talk to anybody and it's not meeting your needs, don't give up. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Even though it feels like all of heaven is silent. And you ready for this one? Here's another discipline to keep, to keep doing, to keep repeating. Serve other people. Don't withdraw to the point that you're not, you know, wh one of the best cures in, in your pain, believe it or not, is to serve other hurting people. Even though you might not feel it, do it anyway. Number three, be realistic. You might be in it for the long haul. You might be in it for the long haul. You know what? Your cancer might not be cured overnight. Your mom's Alzheimer's might not be, might not go away in a year. Your child's disability, it might impact you for a lifetime. Your depression might linger for years. You know, one of my favorite books on leadership is um, a book by the uh, title Good to Great by Jim Collins. And uh, in it, he tells this uh, really inspirational story about Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war for eight years during the height of the Vietnam War. Uh, he was tortured over a period of eight years during his imprisonment from 1965 to 1973. Things, inhumane things were done to him and to his body physically that many of us could barely even comprehend. And he lived out the war without any assurance that he'd ever be uh, rescued, ever be set free, and ever see his family again. But he, he did get out, and he was reunited with his family, and he became a hero. Listen to what he said. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life. And then Collins asked him, Jim Collins said, well, who didn't make it out? Who didn't make it out? And Stockdale replied very quickly, very, uh, he said, oh, that's easy. The optimists. And, and, and Collins said, the optimists, I don't, I don't understand. And he completely confused. And Stockdale said, the optimists. They're the ones who kept saying, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and go. And they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And he said, you know what? They died of a broken heart. Stockdale added, he, he, he said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. And then finally, I want to close with this. Remember, remember, God promises to reward those who are suffering. That's our hope. Listen to a, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. It says this. Don't ever forget those early days when you first learned about Jesus. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. You knew you had better things waiting for you in eternity. Do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord that no matter what happens, 
Remember the great reward it brings to you. Patient endurance is what you need now. So you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. You know, for those of you who have suffered greatly and yet you have remained faithful, listen to me for a second this morning. There is a promise of a great reward one day. Sometimes, sometimes, there's nothing that you and I can do right here and right now except for wait and hope. Sometimes the final chapters of our story or our life have a great and happy ending here on this side of eternity. Sometimes they don't. But even if they don't, wow, we have the confident assurance that God has promised that this is not all there is. That one day we will stand before him and all the injustice will be brought to justice. All the wrongs will be made right. Every tear from your eye will be wiped away. Every believer will receive a new body in Christ. And we will be everything, in fact, will be made brand new. That's our hope. Listen, let me, let me just ask you. Do you have that hope? Because we're all going to suffer. We're all going to be in a waiting room. But do you have that confident assurance that you will stand before God and be with him for eternity? I hope you do. If you don't, you could change that right here and now today. God knows your heart. There's no mystical, magical prayer that you can pray. He knows your heart. He's the only one who does. But you could cry out to him today in a prayer and change your eternity forever. Bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for the faithfulness of Job in the midst of a waiting room, a long period of prolonged suffering. God, I think about my friends here at Coastal, many of whom are hurting and are in pain or have been in pain. I thank you for their example of faithfulness. And God, I pray today they have been reminded that your love for them is so great and so big that you can handle, just like Job, their anger, their confusion, their doubt. Even if it's all directed toward you, your love is big enough. Father, today I pray they would rest in the promises of your word that they would remain faithful and persevere and God I pray for all of their friends I pray for us as a church that we would be a little bit less like Job's friends and a little bit more like Jesus and many times if we just show up and just be there and love and serve what a difference we could make the truth is all the world around us experiences pain and suffering it's how we choose to respond to it that makes all the difference. And so I pray, God, that we would point people to Jesus and we would be there and ready to, uh, to serve and to love and to give and to change this world one life at a time. We love you, Father, and I pray all these things today in the name of Jesus. Amen.